Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite level performers think, act, and operate. As always, if you're listening to this on any of the podcasting platforms, a five-star review would be very much appreciated. And if you get any form of value from the content on YouTube, please be sure to smash that like button, comment, share, and subscribe. As always, we've got an absolutely fantastic guest here today. Corey, it's great to see you. Good to see you as well. Appreciate you being here. So Corey, if in two minutes or less, you could tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and some of your career highlights. Yeah, so um, I'm born and raised in New York City. I've been in London now for six years. I've been in the sales industry for almost 15 years. My background's not the kind of typical background you'd expect, but started my career in finance doing equity research sales, then went to medical device sales, then realized that tech was the place to be and been in a couple of tech scale-ups and kind of built the sales team and also have that's what kind of brought me to London as well. And then kind of in that time, I actually built my own company, which is in the real estate big data analytics space. And that's really where I also learned not just about sales, but also about marketing product and how a company kind of works together as a whole. And from there, that's kind of what actually drove me to Snowflake because I saw a lot of the issues that we were struggling with building our product. And I wanted to kind of be a sales leader at a top performing company at Snowflake. That's absolutely fantastic. There's so much to unpack in just that alone from where you originally brought up and and clearly how you've ended up to London. So maybe let's start a little bit there, actually, Corey. Obviously, it sounds like maybe born or raised at least in New York City. So tell us a little bit about what life was like there and how you eventually ended up over here in London. Yeah, so I was actually born and raised on the beach in New Jersey. So not too far away from New York, you could see the skyline. And then I went to university in Boston and moved to New York straight after I graduated just because, in my opinion, New York City was the place to be. There was nowhere else I was going to go. I wanted to be where the top performers were in all industries. And also, I really appreciate the level of intensity in New York. There's really nothing else like it. You work hard, you play hard, and you just work around some of the best people in the world. And for me, that's where I felt like I was going to learn the most and be able to really kind of push myself to be the best at whatever I was doing. Absolutely. It's uh, the city that never sleeps, as they say, right? And I'm sure you can uh, vouch for that. So when we talk about actually business within New York and and actually what your roles look like, maybe help us understand what what differences you've seen in that experience in New York. And then as you've transitioned to London, whether you've seen a lot of the same or actually some things that maybe surprised you. Yeah. So the thing for me is I think it's it's very industry-based. So uh, starting my career in equity research sales, which was very interesting. I also graduated in 2008, which was the worst time to graduate with a finance degree. But it was an interesting experience nonetheless and made me realize that markets don't always go up. And so it was great to kind of experience that. But equity research sales versus medical device sales versus tech sales, there are similarities between all the various industries, but it is also very different because you're selling to completely different people. So in equity research sales, you're selling to portfolio managers, hedge funds, medical device sales, I was selling to neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons. And then obviously in tech, you know, you work in tech. So there are similarities, but it depends on what subsector of tech you're, you're selling in. Now, from the differences between New York to London, New York is its own kind of beast. I say it's not really, even though it's in the U.S., it's almost its own country. But I would say the the big differences are, you know, New Yorkers inherently are just, we're just more straightforward, a little bit more aggressive. I would say being in London has actually kind of made me a little bit more relaxed and calm about how to kind of approach things. But 
it's actually been interesting being in London. I've, I've actually noticed that there's actually a lot more people are way more trained in things like medic and, and three Ys and value pyramids and all this stuff from at least from what I saw in the tech space in New York. Maybe that's changed in the past six years since I've been, been in London, but. I would say not one is better than the other. I think they just have both very different approaches to how you manage, how you sell, and how you kind of work together. And I think that actually sometimes they can both kind of learn from learn from each other. Yeah. It's fascinating how you've made these transitions, right, in your life from equity, research, medical, and tech, moving countries, right, and, and making all of these transitions and probably taking in a ton of experience as you've done it. So let's understand a little bit more about the, the sales-based decisions. How did you, first of all, get into equity research? Why that? And then why these subsequent transitions? Sure. Well, yeah, growing up where I grew up and having Jewish parents, there was, you know, certain things that you were pushed into, which was medical law or finance. Didn't want to be in medical, didn't want to be in law and finance, I thought was very interesting. And growing up, I actually had uh, my own business in university. I love cars and I actually had a car detailing company and I had to go kind of sell myself to people in the town to let them, you know, clean their cars, detail their cars and everything like that. And as a, as a kid, my father was always like, you should go into some type of sales type of role. And at the time, like my dad, he was an eye doctor. So tech wasn't a thing that was discussed. I wish that I went into tech right after I graduated university, but finance was the only thing that I really knew. And the school I went to was just really a business school. And so for me, finance was the way to go. And so equity research really made equity research sales made sense. Now it's funny. It was the place, the job I was in was almost like, not exactly Wolf of Wall Street because it was legal what we were doing, but the culture was just not a really a cultural fit for me. But it's probably where I learned some of the best things that I've learned because the, the guy who ran the business was, you know, teach you how to cold call, teach you how to get on the phone, teach you how to be okay with rejection, you know, calling hedge fund managers or managing a couple billion dollars when the markets are crashing. You get a lot of answers that uh, aren't the most polite things in the world. So just to be able to handle that and look at things and also just the level of intensity there. It's not a place I'd want to stay forever, but I'm kind of glad that was my first job because it just gave you a different experience of things, but also made you realize, okay, there's great things here, but these are also not things that I want for every day in my career. Absolutely. Uh, the, the great thing about this is I realize I can relate to you in a few ways already. One of them being I love cars too, and also parents driving me towards a corporate law career, which I eventually dropped out of to, to start in sales as well. So there's a few bits of synergy there, Corey. One thing I really want to understand about you is what was driving you personally during all of this time? Because the feeling I get from you as you tell these stories, just, just in terms of your energy, very driven, right? That there was something that you had in your mind that was really pushing you to say, I'm on a mission. There's something I'm trying to drive here. So bring us into Corey's mind through those years. Help us understand what you were going through. Yeah, so the mentality and the drive, the reason why I have drive has changed over the years. When I was young, it was all about money. I was like, you know, I need to earn. I want to have a nice car. I want to have a nice house, all these types of things. And not that I still don't want certain things, but I realized that that mentality was also skewing some of the decisions I was making for jobs. So finance, equity research sales, then medical device sales, great job working at Johnson & Johnson. You can earn a lot of money. But I realized that actually I wasn't enjoying what I was doing. I didn't like the people I was around. And then when I went to the first tech company I was at really was uh, Contently, which was an enterprise marketing tech platform. I was the seventh hire there. I took a huge pay cut to go there. But I was like, oh, I actually really like the founders. I like the product. 
I think the the industry is very interesting. I was like, actually, well, maybe if I take a job that I'm really passionate about, the earnings will also come with it if I prove myself. My dad didn't agree with that because he's like, what are you doing? But the funny thing is, a year and a half later, I was earning more than I was before, and I was learning and also really enjoyed it. So it it also kind of started to pivot the way that I was making decisions. And it's interesting now because, you know, I've been a manager for seven, eight years. I'm not that old, but it's interesting sometimes hearing younger people and saying, like, oh, I want to, you know, I need to be make this much this and that's such and such. And I was like, well, that should be a part of your decision-making criteria because there's all these other things you really need to take into account. And I believe, I'm sure you feel this way, that if you're a hard worker, you have a good product to sell and you actually enjoy where you're at, the earnings will come with it. And so, yeah, the, my mind has changed a little bit. Like now I love cars, but I'm like, I don't need to have a really nice car to be happy. Like it's more things have changed and where I kind of put my my money and what I want to do. I get it completely. And I've often had this mantra of, you know, focus on your performance and, and the rest will come. I've often had that saying because to your point, I've made money motivated career decisions in, in the past. I remember one company I was there for about three months and then I didn't stay any longer because very quickly I realized there was no passion, no drive, no no appetite for the organization and what they were doing. And then actually they could have tripled my pay. It just didn't make a difference. So I can completely relate to, to what you're saying there. One thing that I really loved about your story, knowing knowing you a little bit offline, Corey, was uh, that step that you made from being in sales to actually starting building your own company, doing it very successfully as well. So I want to spend a little bit of time on that transition from sales leader, I believe you're at at the time, to then going and starting up your own company. Just bring us into that moment and that decision making. Yeah, so it's it's something that I always wanted to do. My father was an entrepreneur. He was an eye doctor. He had a chain of kind of stores, kind of like uh, spec savers, not as big. And then my mother actually, before uh, she had my brother and I, she was an entrepreneur as well. So it was something that I always just heard growing up and it's something that I aspired to be. I had my own business university, it was small, but I, I really enjoyed it. And actually, before I moved to London, I actually met my business partner on the beach in Brazil. And he's this British guy, super smart guy. He's a quant, uh, you know, worked at a hedge fund, worked in the real estate space. So he had the idea. He's like, oh, I want to do what Bloomberg did in the finance space in real estate. And I was like, come on, this is, has to be done already. And so I realized, I'm like, oh, actually, this hasn't been done in the UK. And so I was working at Contently. I was kind of doing both on the time because to get an entrepreneur's visa here is not the easiest thing in the world. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that was kind of why I did it. We had a nice kind of symmetry because he was more kind of, you know, product focused. I was more business focused. And also being a Contently, I learned a lot, not only just in sales, but also in marketing. We had an amazing marketer there called Ray Chang, and I just got really close to him and learned a lot about lead gen, ABM, things like that. And so building the business, I was like, I can see how I can sell this product. I can see how it makes sense. And also, I just find things in the data space very interesting just because it's something that everybody needs. And real estate something I've always been very interested in. My mom was also an interior designer. And so there's all these kind of things that really came together. And I don't mind taking a leap. It's like, why? Why not? What's the worst? The way I looked at it, my dad disagreed with me, was I'm like, what's the worst that happens? It doesn't, the business fails. And I go into another sales role. It's like, but you still learn a lot. And if you actually talk to some of the best entrepreneurs in the world, which I don't put myself in that stage, is they learn the most from the failures. And so for me, I was like, okay, well, why not try it? I was young. I was 30 at the time or no, 31. And so I figured, why not give it a shot? And the company's still growing. I left in 2019 and um, kind of wanted to take a different path. 
What was the most challenging thing about building that organization? Say fundraising. Fundraising is probably one of the hardest things in, in having a business because it's interesting selling to, say, you know, for us, we sell to CTOs, CPOs, CEOs. Selling to venture capitalists is a, it's just a different beast. They just think very differently. They also have so many deals coming across their, their desk and they only have certain metrics they look at. So I would say, in my opinion, that was probably one of the, one of the hardest things is fundraising is a full-time job in itself. So you're trying to do that. And then you're trying to build your company as well, whether that's hiring, driving revenue, building marketing functions. And you have your VCs on the board who are like, you need to grow faster. You also need to go raise a couple million pounds. So, but at the same time, it's, it's, as again, I think it's, there's a lot of things that I learned from fundraising. A lot of times salespeople, when you come into a company, you're like, here's your deck, here's your product, go sell it. Where when you go fundraising, you really have to think about everything on you know, the product, how you build your business, how you tell your story, why should they buy your product, why are not only you the product, but you and your business partner worthy of their investment. And so I think it also gets you to think differently about you know, when you come into a business and when you do sales. Absolutely. I I've not built a business anywhere remotely close to, to what you have, Corey, but let's say I've had side hustles and, and things of that nature where I, I guess my aptitude for sales has played a massive role in how successful those ventures have been. So what I'm really curious about with you is, is how instrumental your talent for sales and the aptitude that you have has been in actually successfully building and scaling a business. And the pivot question to that is how important the decision you had to make with your business business partner was to maybe add a complementary skill set for the overall size and scale of that organization? Yes, yeah, so I would say the sales, it's, it's interesting. I think sometimes I wish I actually went and did the, you know, went to a BMC and had that old school, not old school, because it's Medic and MedPick, which is an old school. But I wish I kind of had that like just typical sales training. On the other side, I'm kind of glad that I haven't because I think when you have to figure it out yourself and be scrappy, it forces you to learn things that you maybe wouldn't at a, at a bigger business. And so I think with the kind of path that I've had and the learnings that I've had, I think that's what kind of drove me to, to be successful. So I was like, okay, well, nobody's giving this to me. I need to figure it out or else Contently's going to fire me because I'm not hitting my numbers. And so it forced me to kind of go outside my comfort zone. It also taught me how to do things I never thought I could, like selling a product that wasn't even a customer couldn't touch. It was just off screenshots. And you're like, okay, we have to do this because we need to do this to raise money for Contently. Now, when it came to pivoting that, or as you saying, like realizing I needed a business partner, I didn't realize I needed a business partner. It's just we, we met. He had, the, had this great idea. I also don't think, I think a solo founder company, I think not that they can't be successful, they can. I think it's better to have people who are complementary to you. You know, it just allows you to run a business more successfully. I think if I was to ever build a company again, I would happily have a couple founders, not just two. You know, it's like if you could have someone who, okay, have a great marketer, great sales, great product, great tech person, make starting a business 10 times easier um, because you don't have to go hire these people. And also, you know, these people are incredibly invested in the business. So to me, I think it's the, one of the best ways to go about it. It's really fascinating because I even look at what we're doing here at Lacework and now having co-CEOs, right, David Hatfield and Jay Parrish, and, you know, one taking a little bit more ownership around sales and revenue and some of the business side of, of the organization, and then Jay taking a bit more of a lead on the tech 
and building that muscle there. So you, we're starting to see, I think, a bit of an evolution in the space where, you know, people are starting to say, actually, I've got a skill set that lends itself well here. There's another skill set here that can actually help us accelerate the results that we want to drive for the, the total organization. So it's great to hear that you've had a similar experience. Let's kind of move a little bit ahead here, Corey, because I want to talk about you exiting that organization and then taking that decision to say, hey, I, I want to get back into the field, right? You're, you're now an RD over at Snowflake. So just help us understand a little bit more about the decision to one step away and then actually say, you know, I want to come back out into the field and, and be at an organization like Snowflake. Yeah, so Realize was an amazing experience and we were we were growing the business and I think sometimes, you know, my business partner had a little bit of differencing opinion of where we thought the business would go and where it should go. And so, you know, we both made a decision where I was like, you know what, I think the business should go this way, but also it was I felt like he had probably more passion to it than I did because it was his idea. He came from real estate. Real estate wasn't really my hardcore passion. And also I had this desire as well personally to take time off. Coming from New York, being an American, it's one of the, the biggest problems that we have in this. Well, we have a lot of problems in the States right now, but is that we don't take enough time off. We don't take time to reset and recharge. It's always work, work. And being over here has even cemented that. When I talk to my friends in the States, who are all very high performing in their jobs, barely ever take holiday. They don't really take much time off. And so at the time, I was like, you know what? Now's the time to go do something because I was young. I didn't have family, kids, anything. So I went traveling for about 10 months. So I went traveling around the world, tried to did some things that I wanted to do. I wanted to learn how to like, get, my, get my sailing license and wanted to learn how to surf more. And so I did that and that just as well enabled me to put things more in perspective. And then funny enough, I, I actually went into another prop tech company as the MD. It was a great business. I really believed in it, but unfortunately COVID hit and just put a, a stamp on the business. The business is still around, but it, it really slowed it down. And so I took a step back and I was like, okay, what, what is my nexus move and why? I did think about starting another company, but I'm like, actually, I don't want to do that right now. And I realized that there were certain things I felt like I could learn from going to a company like Snowflake. But also, I've been following Snowflake for a while because of my business. And I was like, I want to go to a company that's best in class, from management to brand to product. And Snowflake, in my opinion, really checked off all those boxes. And that's kind of why I went to, to Snowflake to be an RD. And also my boss, Julian, was someone that I felt like I could really learn from. And so that was kind of, you know, really made the decision. A lot of my friends were like, how are you going to go work for someone? And, and I laughed and I go, it's, it's way better than working for a VC. I go, nothing's as hard as that. So, wow. so it wasn't a big switch. There's a lot to be said in that. I, I, something I want to peel back a little bit, though, is you said you want to work for best-in-class leadership, a best-in-class organization. Mm. What does that look like for someone who's trying to map out their own criteria for taking a career decision? What does best-in-class look like in Corey's words? Yeah, so I think I think I think it also depends on where you're at in your career and what you're looking for. Like if you're looking to just be an a, you know an SDR an AE or if you're an RD, I think there are very different decision making criteria and what you're looking to do. For me, in the stage in the career that I was in, because I really do enjoy management, I like coaching and mentoring and things like that. And so for me, there's a couple things. One, it was do I see my because I, I wanted to be at a place you know not just for a year two years which a lot of tech people like to hop around for me it's like I, I actually wanted to stay at a place for a while and so it goes okay I was like okay where do I think I have career opportunities not just for sales but are there other opportunities inside of a business two 
will my boss coach and mentor me? Will they, will my boss also let me run my team like it's, like it's my business, which Jules very much does, which is, which is incredible. Cause a lot of times you go to companies or big companies, sometimes your, your boss will, you know, not let you really treat your business like it's yours. And then the other thing was looking at the, the head leadership. And I'm sure you know Frank Slootman quite well. He's kind of a, a guy to really appreciate and, and want to work for. And I really, for me, I like the fact that he actually wasn't an entrepreneur because I think sometimes, and I can, I can say this, I knew that if Realize got to a certain size, we would probably had to replace me with someone else or I would have to move into a different role. And I, I really appreciated the founders of Snowflake were so emotionally intelligent and aware that they brought a CEO on very, very early. And obviously had Bob Mulia and then Frank Slootman. And to me, that said a lot about the business and the maturity of the people in it. Not saying that some tech founders can't really grow and scale with a company, but it's, it's very hard and rare to do that. And I think a lot of people don't realize there's nothing wrong with bringing other people in who are meant to be better at certain parts of the business. So for me, it was just kind of all these things really aligned and made sense. Absolutely. And uh, you've now been there for, for a little bit of time. One thing it'd be good to understand is when you were going to the organization, did you sit there and think there's a, there's a part of my game, there's a, there's a muscle here that I, I want to build. I want to get better at this particular thing because Snowflake are, of course, been a wildly successful organization running a playbook. You know, everyone's running a, a really unified way of going at the market. So did you sit there and say there's something specific? I want to garner from this experience? Or did you go in a little bit more wide-eyed and just open to say, let me just absorb whatever I can? I think it was both. You know, I think when you go into a company like Snowflake, actually even any company, I think I always tell people not to be very siloed in your thinking. And you're like, you know, I think a lot of times people, especially salespeople, we can get very blinded. It's like quota, 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 nothing else. And, but the thing is, where actually sometimes you can learn the most is if you are open and talk to other aspects of the business. We're obviously very close to marketing, but even coming close to finance and product, just really understanding why and how people make decisions. Because a lot of times in the sales org, we get so closed off and we can always like to blame other parts of the business, but that's because you don't understand why the other part of the business is making a decision or why does product take so long to build a product? It's because there's a lot of aspects to building a product to make sure it's, it works very well. And so for me, it was coming in being like, oh, I would love to see how just a company like Snowflake runs, period, just across the whole company. Even things like sales ops, deal desk, like how do they do it at scale? But then also I think for me it was, I consider myself someone who's very high performing in sales, but I've never had that typical, as I said, not BMC, but like never had that typical training. And I go, you know, I'm sure I could take everything I've learned from being scrappy and really fine tune not only selling, but also managing. And it, it actually has done that. So coming in and just being around the management team and even just the top sellers that we have, just by osmosis, just like listening and paying attention and also being willing to admit, being like, I don't know this, help me here. You just learn so much that way. Absolutely. And one of the biggest things I'm feeling from this conversation, Corey, is just really exposure, right? You you lean in to pretty much everything that you do. You go into organizations, you built companies, you started to really understand the true ecosystem. But not only that, even in more so your personal life, right? You, you're traveling and you're getting that real exposure internationally. So I think for anyone out there listening, or well, certainly something I'm starting to take away, right, is just continuing to get as much exposure across organizations and actually globally wherever possible to just continue to add to, to all of our game which is which is fantastic 
Just looking at a little bit now, you running a team, right, and starting to talk a bit about the talent that's within the organization and what you look out for, what makes an elite level salesperson in your opinion? So, yeah, I think, well, I, and I, I know I've said this a couple of times, I said, I think if we're talking about just like an enterprise level AE, which is really kind of what, what I've been focusing on, I would say there's a, there's a couple of things. And, you know, for us at Snowflake, we say we look for A players, which everybody says. But for me, when I look at it, there's a couple of things. I say, I'm going to divide into two things. There's the characteristics, but then there's a certain type of sales rep that I like to hire. As I say, I like to not hire sales robots. It's very easy to hire someone who can take a deck, spit it out, memorize it, and go do it, and try to just like you know follow the playbook to a T. But I think, and this is only talking about what we do at Snowflake, which is similar to Laceworks. It's a very enterprise sell. It's very complex. It's very value-driven, which is what I enjoy because you're not just selling. It's not a very transactional sale, which to me is not something that I enjoy. And so when I, when I look for that type of person, it's I don't want someone who's going to do that. So when I put people through an interview process, I actually don't want everybody in my team to be the same. So if you actually look at the five people on my current team, they're all completely different personality, background, the way they sell, how they sell. And for me, I don't want to actually change the way they sell. For me, if I can help them tweak certain aspects to what they do to maybe make it a little better, then to me, that's, that's great. But that's the biggest thing for me because I also, as a manager, don't want to, if you hire, as I call, sales robot, I don't want to have to micromanage them. And I feel like if you hire people who think strategically, almost like an entrepreneur, which you don't need to be an entrepreneur to think entrepreneurially, you can be an entrepreneur. And I think a lot of salespeople at Snowflake have that mentality because of the, what we sell and how you have to sell. It's not just, here's the product, buy it. Now, once you've kind of understand that aspect to it, then there's key things which everybody talks about. You know, you, you can't have, you know, you got to have people have drive and all those types of things. That's a given. You can't teach drive. But I would say the, the key things that I also like to focus on are things like, emotional intelligence and IQ because, and this is also very snowflake based as well, because who we're selling to, we're selling to CTOs and heads of data who are incredibly intelligent people and they can smell bullshit from a mile away. And so for us, we need people who can build trust and not just try to like shove a product down someone's throat. And so for me, those are the key things. And obviously, as I said, drive and, and those things, everyone kind of, we all, we all know that already. So these are the key things that I look for. And drive, you can tell just by the way someone handles a interview process. Do they follow? I'm always amazed at how many people don't follow up after interviews and don't do basic things that take like two seconds. So those are kind of the key things that I look for. It's super insightful that is. And, you know, you spoke about the diversity in your team, right, in terms of the way they think, maybe the way they operate a little bit as well. I guess some people from the outside might look at that and say, well, actually, what does that look like in real terms? Because there are maybe a lot of organizations or people that think about things in a bit more of a linear way that I want five people who are very similar and think about the world in a similar way, because that's going to give me predictability in, in a mm -hmm. forecast or execution overall. So just bring us into the world of what's your rationale behind that? And then from an execution standpoint, what have your observations been? Yeah. So I think just because I like to hire people that aren't exactly the same doesn't mean that there aren't similar characteristics. It's like say I look at my friends, they're all very different, but they all have very similar characteristics. You know, they're all very, you know, they're all very friendly. They're all very caring, they're all very loyal. And so some people can have a little bit of different personalities in the way that you approach a deal, but that doesn't mean that they just all go off and go crazy. You know, they still follow a playbook of Snowflake. You know, we still adhere, we still 
We don't fully say, okay, you have to do medic every step of the way. There's certain processes and beliefs that we follow. But the thing for me is when I look at sales, I know that sales is a individual, if you want to call it sport per se. But for me, I actually, I try to look at it a little bit differently. So when I build a team, I actually don't kind of pit them up against each other because say you hit 110% of your quota and the other person hits 115, just because a person's 115, in my opinion, doesn't mean that they're actually better than you. Because there's a lot of variables to sale that you can't always predict. But also, what if that person is just a horrible team player and isn't a great cultural fit? To me, that's the person's not better. And so when I look at something like Snowflake, where we're trying to build a company to get to 10 billion in revenue by 2029, that's not done from one person. That's done from a team working together. So for me, I actually, the reason why I enjoy having people who have different mindsets is so when we're on our calls, like we had our PG review day on Thursdays, everybody does PG in a similar way, but I'm like, hey, you know, Guillermo's on my team, like, can you pull up your veto? He'll write a veto different than someone else. And so the same thing around creating proposals, how do they pitch, do MBMs? I like that you have a little bit of differentiation, but also I like the different because I do think it creates this teamwork because people are like, oh, I can learn something from this person. I can learn something from this person. And I think it just helps the business overall. Now, actually, funny enough, if you look at Julian, my boss, the uh, managers that he's hired in the UK were all so different. And we've had, we had an incredible year last year. I, I think that's actually really good because also when you bring people into the business, it is hard to hire people, especially at the scale of Snowflake. It's hard to hire everyone that's the same. So it's actually nice to have, you can be like, oh, actually this person works better for this manager. This person works better for this manager. And it's kind of nice to have a differentiation. Makes a ton of sense. And, you know, nothing great is ever really achieved alone. When we talk about some of the, the most elite sellers out there, right? There's also an ability to really be a quarterback in a deal, right? Bringing in different teams, different functions, knowing when to lean on your manager as well. So I think this team centricity really goes all the way right throughout from an individual contributor right the way up through the organization. Seeing as you've touched on leadership, right? Really love to get your perspective on not only what makes a, a great elite salesperson, but also what makes an elite sales leader as well. So it'd be great to get your perspective on that. Yeah, sure. So I think if you're to break it down into what makes a great leader, period, and then what makes a great sales leader, I think as a manager, period, there's a certain things that you should be doing no matter what role you're in in a business, whether you're head of product, whether you're, you know, CEO, CFO, whatever it be. For me, when I always, when I, when I look at it, and these are the things I'm sure you hear that everybody said in your, your podcast is, you know, the key thing you should always be focusing on is really figuring out how do you help your team member get to where they want to be. Now that could be hitting quota or it could be to their next job in a business. So for me, you know, I have some people in my team who are like, I really want to get to managerial roles. I'm like, okay, well, in the next six to 12 months, what are the things we need to do to enable you to get there? Because I think as a manager, you should also be judged on kind of, I don't want to say the legacy you leave per se, but say you were working for me and then you became a manager, how good you are as a manager should reflect on me. So if you're a good manager, that means that I did a great job setting you up for success because that's what you should be doing and you shouldn't be getting in the way of your people. So even, even if that means say someone on your team doesn't want to stay at your company, they're like, actually, I really want to go somewhere else that you should help them to do it. You know, for me, obviously you want to try to convince them, but if they want to go somewhere else, like, you know, they want to go somewhere else. And so I think those are things you should be doing. Like you should be helping people, whether it's in the business or outside the business. It's like, why, why shouldn't we? We should all be supporting each other, especially if we work hard and you've proven yourself. There's no reason not to. Now, as a, as a sales leader, if you to really dig into it, I think, I think there's a couple of things. I think one, when salespeople are in the business, they have their troughs of the year, which obviously everybody has. But as a sales leader, you need to help people get through those troughs, stay really positive, 
stay on point because you can kind of get in this, you can kind of get blinders as, as a, as a sales leader and not a sales leader, but as an AE, because you see, you know, you might not be hitting your numbers this quarter and selling a product like Snowflake, it takes time to sell. So you need to help them be positive, get through it. You also need to kind of help them as well, whether, you know, they're going through things in, in work or outside of work, you know, everyone has things that they're struggling with mentally. I'm a very big advocate of mental health. You know, when I was 25, I lost my mom and it really kind of brought my transition into therapy and looking at it very differently. So I think as a leader, you also need to be personable. Like the people we work with, they're people, even though we have numbers to hit this, this is also a job, you know, and thing, your, your personal health, your physical health is most important, but also is making sure someone has the the ability to sell what they need to sell. So whether that's training them on, helping them with PG, whether that's helping them learn medic, three wise, value pyramids, whatever it is to enable them to do their job. Like at Snowflake, a lot of the reps I hired don't have background in medic or three wise. And some of them are like, I don't have this training. And I'm like, you can you can learn this. I can teach this to you. It's not it's not rocket science. And so, you know, I think for that as well, it's being able to get people to where they need to be, but also working within people's systems. Because the way I sell is probably very different than the way you sell. And neither one is right or wrong. So as, as a leader, you need to be able to understand that and help that. So for me, I try, I try actually not to say you have to do this. It's just trying to give them certain things that I'll say, okay, like maybe this might help you do this and do that. You've touched on quite a lot there, right? And, and part of that is having a bit of empathy, right? Being a relatable leader in a way so that your team feel that bit more of a personable side to you, which I think is really interesting. It's sometimes something that's not explored as much as it should be. But the pivot topic to that is that the world we're in, it, it's not easy, right? Software sales, is it's tough in most of these organizations. There's a certain level of pace and expectation that can often come with that. So I want to get your thoughts on how you strike that balance as a leader with making sure that the team really understand that there is certain level of expectation. It's not going to be easy, right? And they're going to have to run through some hurdles while also making sure that there is not a feeling of, of burnout and that there is still that understanding of that humanistic side of things. How do you find that balance of setting the right expectation there? Yeah, it's interesting uh, to kind of back it up a little bit. It's funny, in my career, I, I really enjoy sales and I, for many reasons, but the one thing that's always kind of made me pull back a little bit from it is the culture of sales. I actually don't really love the culture of sales. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think sometimes companies, you know, you hear of companies, you know, QBRs yelling at people or firing people or just being so aggressive towards people. And to me, that, that behavior is not necessary. And I also don't think that actually drives people, especially in today's day and age. I don't think it drives people. Maybe some people. Some people, you know, the whole carrot and stick methodology, some people might like it. I would say most people don't, in, in my opinion. Also, I believe that if you hire the best talent, you shouldn't have to do that. If you hire people and you really put them through a proper process, you shouldn't have to do that. Now, this is not me saying that, like, if someone is underperforming, you just let them do as they please. But I, the way I believe is if you enable your team, you help them and you work with them and you tell them these are the expectations. So these are the numbers we expect. This is what it is. This is how we expect you to hit it. And if you need any help, come to me and I will help you. If they don't do those things, then, you know, it doesn't work. make sense for them to stay in the business. But I don't think you have to create a culture that is that you make people scared, that you make people intimidated to be in a meeting. Like to me, this is completely unnecessary. And the snowflake, that's why I love the culture. Snowflake Jules, uh, well, Julian, he's really created that, that type of culture. He's, you know, been in all different types of sales environments and he didn't want that at snowflake. And 
we have incredibly high performing people. We have people that make a lot of money and absolutely crush their quotas. So you can see it can be done. But I also think that, you know, with the kind of the, the way it is, is there's also the work hard, play hard mentality. So you as a boss, everybody works hard, but you also need to really make sure that you help your team also switch off. So I try my best. I don't do it all the time. I could be better at it sometimes, but now that I feel more ramped at Snowflake and I know the business better, you know, you want your team to take time off. And also for me, what I do is like every four to six weeks, we do a team outing and I don't do it after work. I, at, on Fridays, we do it at 12 o'clock. I'm like, you know what? We're taking a half day and we're going to go do something fun, whatever that be, going to a nice restaurant, going out. So for me, it's also showing your team that you appreciate what they're doing and also the fact that, you know, you're there to really support them kind of in their journey. Absolutely. One thing with you, Corey, it's, it's almost like, where does Corey go next, right? And I know you're still pretty early as it relates to your, your journey at Snowflake, clearly a, a ton more to achieve, even though you've done a ton so far. I want to really just get into your mind right now when you just look ahead at your own story, your own journey. What other chapters do you want to write in this book of Corey? Because I'm, I'm pretty fascinated about when I look at your background, where you are today, what do the next few chapters look like as far as you've mapped them out so far? It's funny, this will probably go against everything that anybody's probably ever told you, but or people you've spoken to. I actually haven't mapped out my next four or five years. It's funny, when I came back, every December I take a usually two or three week holiday. Latin America, a lot, a lot of friends down there, and I like to surf. And, and it's funny, when I came back, so I have a business coach and a therapist, I was like, I was like, you know, everyone tells you you should make goals for the year, but this year, I was like, I'm not going to do that. And I go, I'm like, I know that I need to perform at Snowflake. And I go, you know what? I'm just going to relax. I was like, because I always put so much pressure on myself to do all these various things. And I go, I actually don't think it's necessary. I was like, because I'm driven anyway. I know I'm going to do what I need to do. But also, I think the thing is, is if I mapped out my next four or five years, it might not be what I expect it to be. And I think sometimes, I think it's good to have potential things you want to do. But I also think sometimes as people, we become so saying, okay, well, I have to do this. I have to buy a house, I have to buy a car. I have to get this job, whatever it is. The problem is one, then you're actually not fully focused on what you're currently doing. But also I think that it doesn't enable flexibility and what could potentially happen because you might be like, no, I have to do this in three or four years, but other things can evolve and come up. And I think subconsciously, you're not giving yourself that flexibility to do it. And we're so focused in our jobs that I've been trying to actually say, okay, you know, kind of be a little bit more relaxed and patient with how things come because I had no idea I was going to be. It's, if you said to me three years ago or two years ago, I was going to be at Snowflake, I would have been like, no, like, that doesn't make sense. So I think sometimes people, we need to be goal driven in theory, but I think at the same time, sometimes we put too much pressure on ourselves to say, okay, at 40 years old, which is only four years from now, I want to be a chief revenue officer of that company. What if that doesn't happen? So that means, in theory, that means I'm automatically not happy with the role that I have. So yeah, so there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of ways you can go about it. Who knows what's going to happen at Snowflake? Snowflake has so many opportunities that I don't even know what's going to happen in two years at Snowflake because of the pace we're growing that maybe all of a sudden this new role comes up. I'm like, oh, I could see myself at Snowflake for another five or six years. It's like, who really knows? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, often we sometimes say that careers can be driven by design or simply by opportunity. And mm -hmm. one of my former sales leaders once said to me, Alex, just ultimately be where the, the business and the world needs you to be. Mm -hmm. And 
that was because I I used to be and to a certain extent probably still a little bit I'm trying to kind of work every step out right and it's how do I make this step at this time and the reality is is going back to the point we spoke about earlier when you focus on on your performance and your execution and you start to just embrace this present moment it's amazing what can come and follow that and sometimes the best opportunity is not actually the clear linear path that seemingly ahead of us at the moment so i love the way you frame that and i think there's a lot to be said in that i just have a couple of other things for you corey one of them is i know certainly on a personal note and and with a lot of other sellers that i speak to global work experience is is a topic that gets discussed as you know is this something that should form a part of a seller's journey and i know part of you might come back to me and say well alex it depends on what you want to do but the question actually in that is how much value add do you feel to you as a leader and you as a seller do you feel you have gained simply by having experience selling and being in the field in another country to your home country Yeah, it's funny. Your colleague, Emma, I was talking to outside, we were talking about this because she was wanting to move to New York. And I was like, you should definitely go to New York. But I think in any role, yeah, if you can go abroad, definitely. I think in sales, 100%. Actually, this is what I said to her earlier before before I came in the room was that being an American, America is obviously a very country. And there's different types of Americans depending on where you live. But working in America and then now working in abroad in different types of facets abroad, being my having my own business and now working at a company the size of Snowflake, I think it's incredibly valuable to work abroad, whether that is not just going to America, but like for me, I would love to go work in Asia if possible, because you don't really truly understand how to work in a market. And that's not just sales. That is just, that's interacting with colleagues. It's working together. It's communicating all these various things that you just take for granted. Like we have our leadership offsite in two weeks. And so yesterday we're on a call with the head of Germany and someone Finland and Sweden and Dubai. And, and it's, for me, I find it fascinating. You're sitting there talking and just trying to see how the way people perceive how to sell in those markets how to build businesses in the markets. It's There's similarities, but there are these nuances that actually have a massive impact on those markets. And it's funny being American, how they'll be like, oh, America doesn't understand this. I'm like, yeah, you're, you're totally right. So, But it's it's hard to understand it unless you're there and you can really experience it and, under, and understand it. So yeah, I think if anybody can go live abroad, not only for work, but also just for personal growth it's uh, it's completely invaluable and i feel incredibly lucky to be able to do it well i'll aim to take your advice you've half sold me on new york now so i'll certainly have to uh, have a think about that one for sure Corey. this has just been absolutely jam-packed full of amazing insights i have one final question for you which is if you were talking to that person out there that's anywhere in any position in their career and they want to go from good to elite what's that single best piece of advice that you'd give to that person it's a good question. It's from good to elite. I would say there's a couple things to it. I say one, be very open to learning, but also be very open to learning and, and not tell people that you don't know what you don't know. So there's nothing wrong with not knowing something. And I think a lot of people have this mentality that when they come in, they shouldn't tell people, you know, be like, oh, people expect me to know all this information. No, it's not true. And also if you work for a company that won't help you learn, then you, in my opinion, you shouldn't be at that business. Like it's, as I said, at Snowflake, there's certain things that I did not know coming into the business. And I will go speak to these lead, the other sales leaders who have incredible sales backgrounds, be like, Hey, can you, can you explain this to me? Can you help me understand this? And I think everyone needs to take on that mentality. It's too much of this. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to know what I know and I'm supposed to look perfect. It's like, that's not, that's not possible. 
in life and in work. And then other than that, I would say, you know, just if people want to give you opportunities, take it. So I think a lot of times people are sometimes nervous to take different opportunities, experiences, whether that's moving to another country, whether that's taking a, a new job, maybe it might be horizontal. But where I've learned the most is just from kind of like doing this really random path that I've taken, which I didn't expect. And then from that, I would say also do learning outside of work. So there's, in today's age, we're so incredibly lucky with all these online platforms, people like you creating podcasts, like there's just so much information that when people say to me in a business, like, well, I didn't learn that. It's like, well, can you go learn that? Like in your free time, there's all these videos, podcasts, blog articles. It's, it's absolutely, and it's free. So I think those are the key things I would say. And, and also just, just enjoy the journey. We get so stressed at work, which I can understand I get stressed at work, but just enjoy the, the ups and the downs because sometimes the down moments are actually where you can learn the most. And same thing in the high and just kind of let the path take it and don't try to be so rigid about it. Absolutely. It's a phenomenal advice. Corey, is this your first podcast or have you done a few before? No, it's my first one. Well, look, your biggest accolade now is that you've got a virtual trophy for coming on the elite level. It's been an absolute pleasure and one of my personal favorite episodes. So thanks a lot for sharing some insights with us. To anyone who's been listening or tuning in, I hope that you've gained some value from today. Please be sure to smash that like button if you're watching this on YouTube and leave a five-star review if you're listening on any of the podcast platforms. And I look forward to seeing you on the next one.